is such a privilege to get to share with you this morning. Um, as Matt said, I'm Amy, and I've been married to Dave, who I think had to take... Oh, no, he's managed to stay in. We've been married. We've just celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary, and we have four kids ranging from three through to 24, so we well and truly span all the ages and stages in this season of our life. And I am a born and bred Auckland girl. And I have spent most of my summers up sort of Matakana way at the beaches up there. And I think like a lot of Kiwi kids, when I think about summer, I think about going slow, I think about being by the beach, and I also think about jigsaw puzzles. Anybody else spend summers doing jigsaw puzzles? We had to have quiet time in the afternoon. And so often things like jigsaw puzzles would come out. The giant kind where you would actually have to sort them for a while. And, you know, we had the method that you find all the edge pieces and then you try and group everything into what looks like it belongs together. And you're constantly looking at this picture on the box thinking, where does that go? Where does that fit in relation to this picture? And I don't know about you, but there would be times where I would get really frustrated because I thought that a particular piece belonged in one area of the puzzle, and it didn't. But I didn't care because I thought that it needed to be there. And so I would keep turning it and just trying anything and everything to make that piece fit where I thought that it should be. And honestly, the last five years of our journey, I have been trying to figure out where the pieces of my life and story belong. So I want to give you a little bit of a condensed life story before I get into this. In August of, two, of 1999, so nearly 20 years ago now, Dave and I chose to plant a church with my parents. We decided that that was what God was calling us to. And we spent nearly 18 years of our lives pouring into that church plant. About nine years into the church plant, I came on staff at first in an administrative role, and then I applied to get my credentials. We were with the Elam Church of New Zealand, and it's like a five-year process before you're allowed to be fully ordained. So I began that journey of becoming a credentialed pastor with them, and a few years into that process, I had the privilege of transitioning into the role of associate pastor alongside my dad. And honestly, I felt like all the pieces in my life were where they were meant to be, that the box looked like I had envisaged, and I was really happy. It felt like desire fulfilled. You know that Proverbs, that a desire fulfilled is like a tree of life. That was the season that I felt like I was in vocationally, that I was where I was meant to be. I was doing what I had been created to do. And then in 2014, life kind of began to unravel. And this time, like Dave and I had been through a very difficult first decade of our marriage, but that had been about us as a couple. This time it felt like the big picture, the community that we were grafted into was unravelling. So in 2014, 
a year that our church at the time would later refer to as a year from hell, um, began to unfold. My dad, who was our senior pastor, had a series of strokes, and he had to, he was meant to take his sabbatical that year. It became a sabbatical slash sick leave. And we all hoped that he would make a full recovery. But he actually continued to have these minor strokes throughout that year. So as you can imagine, that was having an impact on us as a church family. One of my dearest friends who had also been our office manager had been diagnosed with brain cancer at the end of 2013. And as a church, we had been on our knees round the clock. And we saw incredible miracles. We saw extension of life that granted her and her family such precious time together. But in August of 2014, she passed away. While just before that happened, um, members of our congregation and myself, we lost babies at different stages in our pregnancies. And there was just this sense of death and grief for all of us as a church in so many ways. And we were wrestling through, as you do, what are you doing here, Lord? Why is all of this happening? And then, to kind of top all of that stuff off, we had previously had a subtenant that had allowed us to be in the building that we were in as a church family. It had been an empty warehouse when we moved into it, and a small congregation of about 60 adults had so sacrificially sown hundreds of thousands of dollars as well as ours into turning this warehouse into a building that we could worship in as a church. But we couldn't sustain the costs without the subtenant. And we'd managed to go a year without finding a new, new subtenant, but we couldn't sustain that financial pressure anymore. So at the end of 2014, after all this sickness and death and loss, as a church family, we had to close that chapter of our life together and move on and back into a community facility. In some senses, it was a new beginning that we welcomed. I think for many of us, 2014 was a year that we, a lot of us stayed up, you know, those years on New Year's Eve where you stay up just to say goodbye to the year because you're like, goodbye, I am done. I do not want to see you again. That was our 2014. I don't really stay up till midnight these days. I get too tired. But that year, I did. And so we moved on, yes, with disappointment, but with a sense of, Lord, we're desperate for you to do something new for us as a church. We're desperate for all this loss and pain to be over, and we want a new beginning. But we didn't get the new beginning that we hoped for or that we thought it should be. And from 2015 onwards, God began to prune areas of my life that I never wanted to be pruned in. You know, there's areas where we're like, God, cut that off, give me a new beginning. And then there's areas where we're like, we're really happy. It would be really nice, Lord, if life could just always look this way. 
But my dad's health continued to decline and eventually he had to resign. And God began to challenge me that maybe I was no longer called to be the associate pastor. And this is, you know, like, sometimes I think God has an interesting sense of humour because I'd finally got ordained, like five years, finally got ordained. And nine months later, he was like, I'm asking you to let it go. I'm asking you to lay down what you've worked towards to lay down what you think your life and your call and your ministry needs to look like and to trust me that it can take a different shape in this season. And that was really hard. And so I did, and we fully intended that we would stay a part of this church that we'd spent our entire married life pouring into. But 10 months on from my resignation, it became really apparent that that wasn't what God had planned for us, and that he was asking us to move on and entrust the congregation that we loved with all of our hearts to new leadership, to a new beginning, and to trust him that he had a new beginning for us. And honestly, when we stepped away from that season in early 2017, I didn't even know what the picture on the box looked like anymore. I didn't know what God was doing, what he was calling us to. We didn't know what was next. We just knew that he was asking us to close a chapter. And my heart ached because if I had had my box, I would have stayed spending my life doing ministry with my parents, spending my life with this incredible community that we had built our lives with. And so that began for me a very intense period of grief and of wrestling with, well, why did we pour all of ourselves into that? What was the point of that, God? And I really began to wrestle with... Isaiah 43, forget the former things. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Because I didn't want a new thing. I wanted my old thing. And I began to wrestle with, Lord, how do I let go of this cherished part of my life and my history? How do I let go of that? and step into something new without feeling like I'm dishonoring or discarding what has been so precious to me. I found Paul's words in Philippians 3 a little bit easier to relate to. He says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. That resonated with me because The reality is, sometimes it is a strain and a stretch for us to step into new things, to keep moving forward with God and not find that we're stuck continually looking back at what has been. And we're going to unpack Philippians 3 a bit this morning, and it's filled with athletic imagery. So this word strain, it was the idea of putting Every muscle, it was an athlete who was putting every muscle, every fiber of their being 
into being able to move towards the finish line. And that has definitely been my experience, that sometimes it will take everything that we have within us and then some to be able to strain and stretch towards what God has for us. So this morning, I wanna give you three things that Philippians and the last five years of my journey have taught me about straining towards what lies ahead. So before we read the scriptures, I just wanna pray. Father, I just wanna thank you that your word is living. It is truth and it is alive and it has power. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through God's word this morning, that you would highlight for each one of us what it is that we need to receive, that we might be able to press on towards all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... I am in Philippians chapter three, and I'm gonna pick up at verse seven. And the first thing that I want to give you, I'm gonna give you three Ps, is passion. One of the key things that you are going to need if you are going to step into all that God has for you is passion. So Paul says this, he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, What is more, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, So I've scribbled on my Bible too much. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And we're going to talk about running, and I just have to say before we do that I do not run. (laughs) I don't even own a pair of sneakers. Exercise and I are not good friends, and it's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but that's that's just where I'm at. But the image that Paul is painting for us here is of an athlete who knows exactly what he is running towards. He's not running aimlessly. He's not running without a sense of direction or purpose. He knows exactly where he's going and he's putting absolutely everything in to reaching that goal. And do you know what the finish line was for Paul? It was Jesus. It was always Jesus. Knowing him and becoming like him. 
Paul's writing from prison. As he pens these words, he's sitting in a prison, and earlier on in Philippians, he said, you know, I basically don't know what's coming next. I don't know if I'm going to come out of this alive or if I'm going to lose my life, but whether I do or not, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything for Paul was about Jesus. In the verses preceding what I've read, he has basically listed for us and for the Philippian church every reason he had to be proud of himself. Everything that he had achieved according to man's standard. And he says, but you know what? No matter what I have achieved, I would lay it all aside to find Jesus, to know Jesus, to be with Jesus. Paul had this relentless passion to reach the goal of Jesus. And you know, one of the things that I've found in my own journey keeps us stuck in what has been or what could have been is when rather than Jesus, a particular form has become our goal. What do I mean by that? You know, for me, in a sense, building this church had become the goal. Being a pastor had become the goal. And so when I couldn't have those things, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my sense of purpose was. I didn't know where I belonged anymore. But when Jesus is the goal, that changes everything because whether I have a title or don't have a title, the goal is the same. Whether I'm knitted into a community or I'm new and I don't know where I belong yet, Jesus is still the goal. And that gives us a freedom, a freedom to be a lot more flexible in how we live our lives and what we put our hands to. Because Jesus is who has captivated our hearts. He is our passion. You know, Paul talks about pressing on. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the word pressing on, I kind of think like, you know, chin up, one step in front of the other, let's just get through this. And honestly, sometimes pressing on does feel like that. But the word actually meant to follow after, to run swiftly in order to catch a person or a thing. One who in a race runs swiftly to reach the goal, metaphorically to pursue, to seek after eagerly, to earnestly endeavour to acquire. Pressing on is not meant to be a chore. It's not meant to be a drudgery. And that's why we need to keep getting a fresh revelation of Jesus. We need to keep seeing Jesus. You know, I think it's the message paraphrase of Hebrews 12, where it says, you know, if you just can fix your eyes on Jesus, it'll shoot fresh adrenaline into your souls. And that's what I've found over these last two years as I've been learning to step into new things and let the former things pass away, is I need to keep seeing Jesus so that I get a fresh passion. You know, passion isn't just emotion. It's not just euphoric feelings. It actually comes from the Latin word that means to suffer. So if you have passion, that's why Christ's suffering is called the passion. If you have passion for something or someone, it will enable you to endure the unendurable. 
It will propel you to keep moving forward. So when I say we need to have a passion for Jesus, I'm not just like, oh, la, 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 this is all really nice. Everything in my life is going well so I can be passionate about Jesus. It's when our hearts are so captivated by him that like Paul, we will say, you know, whatever I have to embrace, whatever I need to suffer, whatever I need to let go of, I will do that. I will press through that. I will strain and stretch myself because Jesus, you are my finish line. So if we are going to be people who step into the new things, we must recover our passion for Jesus. The second thing as we navigate this tension of old and new and placing all the different pieces of our lives in stories is perfection. Don't worry, I'm not asking you to be perfect. Philippians 3, verse 15. I'm gonna read it to you from the New American Standard Bible. The King James has a similar rendering of this verse. It says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect... Have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Most Bibles use the word mature. I wanted to stick with perfection so you got the three Ps, okay? But it is this idea that you come to a place of completeness and maturity. And so Paul is saying in this verse, the mature people know that this is true. Because he says, have this... um, You should take such a view of things. What is the such a view of things? That everything is lost compared to Christ. That it's worth forgetting what is behind to strain towards what is ahead because Jesus is the goal. Those who are mature have decided and determined that. But how do we become mature? We can't become mature by having a history with God, by having a past So yes, we are called to forget the former, to forget what is behind, but actually it's also what has given us maturity. So there's this tension, because also throughout Scripture, we're continually asked to recall and remember and recount all that God has done. The past, even though we need to leave it behind, at the same time, is meant to fuel an expectation for right now and for what is yet to come. I want to take you back to Isaiah 43. So we often will quote verses 18 and 19. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. We all know that bit. But just before Isaiah says, forget the former things, he actually invites them to remember the former things. He says in verse 16, this is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Isaiah is talking there about how God brought the people of Israel out of an impossible situation. 
He's recounting God's power and God's faithfulness to remind them that just as He has made a way, He can now make a way. That His faithfulness should be fueling an expectation for their current impossible, unlikely situation. We can't amputate our past. I don't believe that that is what God is saying when he invites us to forget. Our past forms us. It shapes us. But what happened for me as we stepped out of that season and into a new is I kept cultivating my past. It had my affection. It had my attention. And I wasn't free to step into a new season because I wasn't looking back from a sense of, wow, God, you've been amazing. Wow, God, you're so good. You're so faithful. I was looking back going, I want to be back there. I want that life back. And why did you take it from me, Lord? So what I've learned is that sometimes for us to be able to step forward, we also need a new perspective on our past. So that's your third P. You need passion, not just for anything or anyone, but you need a passion for Jesus. You need perfection. You need maturity. You need to be willing to develop history with God, to go through some stuff and trust Him. But sometimes for the past not to be a stumbling block, we need a new perspective. You know, one of the ways that I've often thought about this passage as a non-runner, um, my parents did make me do athletics as a child. It was like my most hated night in the entire week. But I had to do it. We all did it as a family. And we had to do hurdles. And you had to clear them to reach the finish line. And what I've realised is sometimes our past is like a hurdle. Maybe it's a hurdle of disappointment, a hurdle of what could have been. Sometimes it's hurdles of highlights. You know, there was a lot of pain in our 18 years of leading a church with my parents, but there was so much joy as well. And we had some of the best, most intimate relationships that I've had in my life to date. And so that became a stumbling block for me because how could it possibly ever be as good as it had been then? So the past can be a hurdle in all sorts of ways and we need a fresh perspective. We need God's perspective if we're going to be able to overcome those hurdles and keep moving towards the finish line. Sorry, I move around a lot. I'm really glad you don't have a little stage here this morning because I probably would have fallen off it by now. They used to have cords because we had to set up and there were always cords and everybody would come up to me after Sunday mornings and say, we were so worried you were going to trip over all those cords moving around like that. So I'm grateful there's no cords, no stage to fall off. All right. Getting a new perspective. So God took Dave and I and our kids back to a place of past disappointment to give us a new perspective. 
Has anybody ever been to Shaw Vineyard's building? That was the building that our Elam Church laboured to build and establish. And I had been seeing Fran, who was one of the lead pastors at Shaw Vineyard with her husband, Vic. I had been seeing, seeing her for supervision um, when I was an associate pastor. And they, if anybody knows Vic and Fran, they are just so gentle. They're like a spiritual mum and dad, and they just felt like a really safe place for us to land and to process They felt like parents who could hold our hands and help us walk through the journey that we were in. But that meant we were back in our building, but with a different congregation. And so here I was trying to process everything that I'd lost, all the relationships that I'd lost. Like I've just given you such a snapshot view of the things that we lost over that five-year period. I'd probably be like a blubbering mess if I actually went into detail. So here I was in this place that had once been like a desire fulfilled and now seemed to symbolise disappointment in every person and every dream that we had had to let go of. And so here I was in a new season in an old place And I would walk in and I would expect my dad to walk out of his office. I would expect people that I knew to be on the door to welcome me. We would be worshipping and we might sing a song that our congregation had also sung. And I would think, where are those people that I used to worship with? And so the grief would just keep coming up at everything that we had lost. And I got more and more questions Why had our church not been able to enjoy the fruit of our sacrifices? Because I would walk in and I had sat in the office while we built this church around us. I knew that the chairs everyone was sitting on, somebody had used their inheritance to buy them. I knew that in the walls of the auditorium were all the prodigals and colleagues that we were believing to experience salvation written on the walls. I knew every prayer and hope and dream, every cent, because I'd been on the financial side of it as well. I knew everything that the people we loved had poured in to build a church in that community. And so I didn't just feel grieved for me, I felt grieved for them. Why weren't they getting to enjoy this church? Why was another church getting to flourish here? Why had our story not had the ending that we had hoped for and prayed for? and laboured towards? Why did we have to start over? Why couldn't we continue to do life and ministry with these people that we had loved so completely? And if I had to be in this space again, why couldn't it be with them? (laughs) But God did a really beautiful thing as we sat in this old place in a new season And he gave us a new perspective. You know, as we talked through the journey with other friends who'd also moved on and everybody was sort of scattered at all these different churches on the North Shore. And it was like, why have you scattered a place that was a family? And she said to me, you know, we've realized that God hasn't scattered us. He's sent us out. 
that we're mature seeds. My dad was a phenomenal expository Bible teacher. And I didn't really realize until I was no longer under his leadership what a privilege and blessing that had been in my life. And so the people who had sat under his faithful teaching for all those years, there was a maturity forged in them. And my girlfriend said, you know, we've realized as we've wrestled it through that God has sent us out to be a blessing to other churches, to help bring that maturity in the word to the places that he has sent us. That was just one little thing that God used to like change how I was seeing this season. You know, in Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21, Paul says this about perspective. He invites the Philippian church to join him and others in following, join with others in following Paul's example. What is Paul's example? That whether you're in a great season or a terrible season, Jesus is still the goal. Whether you have whether you get to keep everything that this life has offered you or whether you have to lay it down, Jesus is still the goal. So he says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now he's actually talking about believers here that even as believers, we can live in a way that opposes the cross of Christ. He says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious one. Our appetites, the finish line that we're looking to, the picture on the box that we've decided it should be, they can shape our perspective. When we lose sight of eternity, when we lose sight that actually we don't belong here, we belong to another kingdom, that we're living from heaven towards earth and not earth towards heaven, when we lose sight of that, it's actually destructive in our lives because that's when the enemy is able to lie to us. The very first time that I had to go back to our old building at 252 Forest Hill Road, It had been a year since I'd been there and I was going in for my supervision. And I knew that I needed to process before I walked in those doors how I felt about going back there. And so I said, God, I just see disappointment. Would you show me something different? And he directed me, I think it's Genesis 28. I'm really sorry, I'm not great with references. I just know it says it somewhere in there. My dad is like chapter and verse, and I don't know if it's a female thing, but I'm like big picture, like it's in there. Um, So Genesis 28, I'm pretty sure, it says that Isaac uncovered the wells that Abraham had dug. And God said to me, Amy, your church dug a well. And this church has been able to uncover it so that my living water can keep 
flowing in this place and in this community. You know, when we had been in that church a couple of years, a Korean pastor walked into the entrance and he just kind of stood there and I went up to him and said, you know, can I help you? And he said, I prayed for there to be a church in this place. He said, God told me to come here and to walk around this building seven times like the wall of Jericho and believe for there to be a church in this building. And he said, I'm just so amazed that there is a church in this building. You know, we can look at what we're digging and we can think of it in such a finite way. But God's kingdom is so much bigger And so when we invite heaven's perspective into our circumstances, you know, if we'd kept an earthly mindset about what we had established as a church, there is no other way to view it but failure. That we couldn't afford to be there, that our church dwindled to, you know, I think by the time we left, it was like 30 adults that had gone from in the hundreds to to a very small remnant. There's no other way, if you're looking at it with an earthly perspective, but to say, well, that was a failure and a waste of time sowing all of those years, all of those tears, all of that love and finance and all those things. No other way to see it but as a waste of time. But when you see it with a kingdom perspective, living water, a bigger purpose that God wanted, not just a church of a particular denomination established in the community, but he wanted his kingdom presence, his living water in that community, it's a success. It's totally, totally different. And so as we sat a few years later back in this building, wrestling with how our story hadn't ended, getting a new perspective, inviting a kingdom perspective into where we found ourselves, transformed everything. And we saw the truth of Isaiah 43 that he makes water spring up in the desert. What was a dry place for us in the natural, in the spiritual, water was flowing. His life was being released. I am not going to pretend with you that I can understand every loss and every death and everything that happened in that five-year season of our lives. But what I have come to peace with is that I believe Jesus is able to bring everything under his control. So if I don't yet see redemption in an area, it's because he hasn't finished there yet. Or I don't see fully there yet. But it doesn't mean that it's a waste, that it's a failure, It doesn't have to stay something that holds me captive if I will trust him to bring it under his control. So here's the thing that I have learned as I've wrestled with where I place the pieces of my story, as I've learned to recover my passion for Jesus, as I've learned perfection, as I've allowed maturity to put the past in its proper place and let it fuel expectation rather than lead me away from what God has for me. As I've gained his perspective and learned to trust that in Jesus, all my pieces can and will one day find meaning, I have learned that there is always more for us to discover 
and uncover and experience in Jesus. Before I read this last bit, I want you to think for a moment about Paul, the man who wrote these words. If you don't know anything about Paul, I like to call him like the super apostle. He was amazing. He had this incredible, miraculous encounter with God where scales literally fell off his eyes and he was able to see clearly. He would go on to plant churches and write most of what we call the New Testament. He witnessed healings and countless conversions. A pretty amazing kind of epitaph to him. But he also had been a persecutor of believers. So before he became Paul, the man that we know and revere in the scriptures, he was Saul, a man who literally killed Christians. If we were to think of like a modern day equivalent, he's like ISIS in a sense. That's how dramatic this conversion is. He's gone from killing Christians to now being one of them. He was shipwrecked, rejected, imprisoned, and beaten. So Paul has this mixture like all of us do in his past. There are incredible highs and incredible lows. And he says this. In verse 12, verse 13, as he's been talking about pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of him, he says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm sorry, Paul, haven't you like written the New Testament? Haven't you like had miraculous encounters with Jesus? Haven't you planted churches and converted people? What do you mean you haven't taken hold of it? Because I don't know about you, but if that's what I'd achieved in my life, I'd be going, yes, I've taken hold of it all. But Paul, do you know why he says that? Because he goes, whatever I've taken hold of, Jesus still has more. Jesus still has more for me to know and experience. However much of God's grace and favour Paul had experienced, he knew that there was more for him to lay hold of and his past had convinced him of it. The Passion Translation says this of verse 12. It says, I run with passion into his abundance so that I may reach the destiny that Jesus Christ has called me to fulfill and wants me to discover. I've learned over the last few years that Jesus has more for me to discover Jesus has more for you to discover. He has an abundance for us to enter into. And the reality of this life is that we won't realize it all. We won't reach the finish line until we're united with Jesus. That's when we experience the fullness. But Jesus wants us to go on a journey of unpacking as much of his fullness as we possibly can. Earthside. And as I've thought about, God, what might you want to say to us this morning? I keep coming back to Paul's words where he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. The new things can't happen 
without us being prepared to enter into the sufferings and the surrender of Christ. Because what is the suffering of Christ? It is the cross. It is absolute surrender to the Father's plans and the Father's purposes and the Father's ways. And as he surrendered his life, new life burst forth. And he says, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, God has called me, God has called our family in the last couple of years to die to what we thought should be and to let him do something new. You know, even this message this morning is something new for me, not just because you're our new church family, but because I couldn't have given this without the surrender, without the suffering, without reaching a place of going, okay, Lord, I will die to what I wanted. I will die. I'm a type A personality. I like titles. I like to know where I stand. I like to know that I'm allowed to do what I'm doing. And to let go of all of that was really scary. But you know what? God has opened up new ways of doing ministry for me in the last year that I could never, ever have envisaged and never would have been possible if I'd insisted on holding on to what had been. And so just during the worship, what I felt is this. Scripture is full of altars, places that people came and they, they built them with rocks, hard things, heavy things, and they placed those rocks on top of each other. And they created places of worship. They created places of sacrifice. They created places of atonement and renewal with these altars. And what I feel this morning is this is our altar. This is our moment where we get to say, yes, God, I want you to do a new thing. And, you know, even as a church, we're on the precipice of new things, It's a new building. There's new staff coming on. And that's going to have a tension of letting go of how things have been done, of releasing people to their new chapters and welcoming people into new chapters here. And so this isn't just about us as individuals. This is also about us as a church that we would say, yes, Lord, we're in a new place. You're bringing new people and we want to be part of the new thing that you are doing. And if that means we have to die to some old stuff, Lord, then we will do it. And so just as the team is playing, I want to just give you the opportunity that this is your altar this morning. If you need to bring a rock And you need to say, Lord, I place what I don't understand at the moment before you, and I invite your perspective. If you need to recover passion for Jesus, if you need a new finish line, and he's saying, I want you to lay down the box that you've created, the picture that you have decided and created in your mind, and I want to see Jesus instead. Maybe that's the rock you need to bring. But I just want to give you the opportunity this morning to present your rock. If you want people to pray for you, we can. But you can also just do this between you and Jesus, 
but I want to encourage you to take a step forward. I think there is something powerful about taking a physical action. Doing a prophetic act that says, God, as I step forward, I'm choosing that the past isn't what I will cultivate anymore. I am going to choose to strain towards what you have for me and what you have for us. So Father, we thank you that you are the God of new things. We thank you that the God who made a way is the God who will make a way. And Jesus, we choose this morning that you would be our finish line, that you would be our end goal. And Holy Spirit, would you so gently come alongside each person here? Would you help them carry that heavy rock to the foot of the cross that they might allow Jesus to bring it under his control today? Father, let us choose surrender that we might experience resurrection power this morning. In Jesus' name.